not who's your boss, not what division you're in, not this. What's the opportunity? Because the opportunity is what determines the contribution that you will make to the enterprise. And that's what we're supposed to do as associates. We're supposed to help the enterprise succeed, right? So when I was there, it was very fluid because what you were trying to do was figure out how can I use the gifts and talents and experience and knowledge that I have in ways that make the best contribution to the enterprise. And guess what? If you're a Gore associate, you're also helping. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Michael Pakanowski. Michael, thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk about what you've been studying basically your whole career and at universities at WL Gore. I think we need to start by giving a shout out to our, our friend in common here, Jerry Benson for setting us up. He, people will remember uh, former CEO of the Utah Transit Authority and their $8 billion of, of assets spread all over the place. So I'm interested, Michael, do you, how do you introduce yourself these days at a, at a business function? Well, I introduced myself as Michael Pakanowski. And, you know, one of the things that was always so interesting to me at the time that I worked for Gore. So I, I was associated with Gore from 1984 to 2013. All right. So that's the, that's the span. 17 years. Um, and, and during that time, and the Gore, uh, Gore company has changed since then, since 2013 when I left. But at that time, there was no, we, everybody was known as an associate. There were no titles. Right? So you were just who you were, an associate. And there's a, there's a famous story about a woman who was working for the leader of the business in Flagstaff at that time, who was a member of some professional women's lunch group, you know, they get together and they'd be handing out um, business cards and her business card would say associate on it. And this would, you know, make her feel a little bit kind of bad that she didn't have some title that all of the others uh, women kind of like all the other women had. Her name was Sarah Clifton. So Sarah went to her leader, Peter Cooper, and made a comment about this. And then later, Peter Cooper had gore-like business card printed up for Sarah, said Sarah Clifton, Supreme Commander of the Universe. And that was the way that Sarah was able to externally show that she had this, but internally she was just Sarah Clifton. Well, this story comes around, all right? So... About 2004, maybe it was, I was working for Gore full-time, and I was asked by the conference board to be part of their speaker series at one of their conferences that they did in New York, and then they did in Los Angeles on culture. And so I put together my bio and sent it, and I get a call from the uh, director or the organizer of this program and said, Michael, you put down, you're an associate. I said, yeah, that's what I am. I'm an associate. And he said, well, that's, that's not going to cut it with our audience. And I said, oh, why is that? And so well, most, of our, most of our audience is expecting speakers who are directors or vice presidents or executive vice presidents. I said, well, okay, which one's the most prestigious? And he said, executive vice president. I said, okay, I'm executive vice president for strategic planning and processes. Right? And that's what got printed up. And that's what I was known by there. Anyway, I go by Michael Pekinowski. 
I left Westminster a couple of years ago. I'm still trying to work through my ideas and get them out to people, but I see myself as Michael Pekinowski. It's it's interesting. I I actually want to talk a lot about Gore and some of the things they do different. I'm reading on your LinkedIn, it says, culture consultant, helping leaders who strive to marry organizational success with true human flourishing at work. I'm interested when you think about, well, can we describe some of the ways that Gore is unlike other organizations, or at least it was when one of my former clients and mentors, Jeff Peters from the Army Medical Command, was actually a consultant for you guys about like, it's not fixed groups and you know, like how it's organized in order to serve customers and make money differently than maybe your average organization. So, so, you know, I think it's really interesting. And one of the things that I am influenced by in my thinking about culture is the work of Edgar Schein, who's was at MIT, grandfather, academic grandfather of the notion of culture. And he was always stressing the influence of the founder on the culture of an organization. And so to understand W.L. Gore and Associates, at least the time that I was working there, you had to understand Bill Gore. I mean, Bill Gore founded Gore in 1958. And he was CEO and chairman of the board up until 1976. And then he continued on the board, but his son, Bob, became um, chair and uh, CEO and chairman of the board. And he continued on as as, uh, chairman of the board after that. But they basically led the company for 50 years, right? So that's a lot of influence that they have in terms of the kinds of persons, the people that they were and how they influence things. So what was what was Bill's experience? Bill worked for DuPont, highly, highly um, successful, highly bureaucratic, highly hierarchical, highly formal organization. And there was a particular experience that Bill had on several several times, which was what what something that DuPont experimented with, kind of led the way with something called a task force. So sometimes they would have a problem that would come up that they could not solve within a regular function or regular area of of discipline. And they had this idea, they pulled together a bunch of people, five or six from different areas, different levels of hierarchical standing and put them together and say, see what you guys can do working on this problem. Bill found that to be absolutely energizing. He found it to be exciting. He found it to be, they came up with solutions that normally the normal organization could not come up with. He also found a couple of other things that happened. He said, when we were on the task force, I was Bill Gore and she was Sally Jones and he was this and he was that. We weren't machinists or chemists or Dr. Pakanowski. We were first name and that's who we were. And then as soon as we got left the task force, what happened? We went back into our halls. We went back into our offices and I became Dr. Pakanowski again. And I did not talk to Bill Gore. I talked to Mr. Gore. And Bill said that that's one of the things that he really wanted. He wanted to capture the, the task force notion, not the hierarchical notion. And so one of the things about the task force that was so powerful was that there was a clear problem that they were working on, or as Bill would say, a clear opportunity. What's the opportunity that you're working on? Not who's your boss, not what division you're in, not this. What's the opportunity? Because the opportunity is what determines the contribution that you will make to the enterprise. And that's what we're supposed to do as associates. We're supposed to help the enterprise succeed, right? So when I was there, it was very fluid because what you were trying to do was figure out how can I use the gifts and talents and experience and knowledge that I have in ways that make the best contribution to the enterprise. And guess what? If you're a Gore associate, you're also helping me try to figure that out. 
And I'm trying to help that out, figure that out for you. And so it creates this extraordinary network within the organization of people who would like everybody else in the organization to exceed beyond their wildest dreams, right? Because if everybody's doing really, really well beyond their wildest dreams, the organization is going to be doing well. So one of the things Gore still has, maybe not quite the same way, but it's still a practice at Gore that was so powerful, was this notion of sponsorship. A sponsor was someone, was a formal commitment, formal commitment that, you, that someone made to help the associate make the best contribution, in, be successful at Gore, increase their contributions at Gore. It's called a sponsor. It wasn't necessarily your leader. In fact, you as the associate would have to ask somebody to be your sponsor. Nobody would be assigned, except when you first came into the organization, nobody was assigned to you as sponsor. You'd have to ask somebody to be your sponsor, somebody you thought could advocate for you and help you be successful in the enterprise. Bill used to joke, if nobody is willing to sponsor you, that's time for you to leave the organization. That's how we know you should leave. Nobody wants to sponsor you. Well, one of the things that was really powerful about sponsors, and it, it produced tension, but sponsors and leaders would often have a different view of an individual. Right? The leader may say, well, this person is not meeting certain expectations. The sponsor may say, hmm, that may be true, but here's the reason why. Or the leader may say, I think this person can really, really make a big contribution in this business. And the sponsor may say, I think the person can make an even bigger contribution in another business. And so you could sometimes have tension or disagreement, but you knew as an associate that your sponsor was advocating for you, that, that you didn't feel like, oh my, I've got to please this one person in order to have a chance of success at core. My brother, who was also a Gore associate, told me that he tried to come to work every day thinking that everybody he worked with, he would co-sponsor. He would be <laughs> not their sponsor, but trying to help them be successful. And that notion of co-sponsorship actually became much more common my time at Gore. So that as I went on and on in my career at Gore, I at one point had a sponsor. And then at different points, I would have co-sponsors, which would be usually somebody within more or less business has an overview of the whole business and then somebody who has a specialty in the areas that I might be working in and I would change sponsors every once in a while. I have to say one of the more intriguing learning experiences for me at Gore was the notion that once you have chosen a sponsor, you or your sponsor can choose not to work with you any longer in that relationship. And I found myself having to go to an early sponsor of mine and say, I don't think you're a good sponsor for me. And so it was a challenging uh, moment, but this is what I liked. He said, I agree, I agree. You really need somebody else at this particular point to help you navigate, to help you move, to help you with your contributions at core. So that was one that I thought was really, really interesting. Another thing that, uh, and I give Bob credit, Bob Gore credit for this, because he did a lot of trying to think about these kinds of things and how do we embody certain kinds of practices at Gore. And he wanted everybody to be able to identify what they were doing in terms of a project that they were working on. What project are you working on? And then how do you know if this is a good project or not? Right? And so he had four questions that he wanted you to be able to answer. You had to be able to write down your project in one sentence. It could be a run-on sentence. It could have footnotes, it could have, but it had to be one sentence, right? So you couldn't just ramble on and on and on. Then he had four questions. If you succeed, 
How will this be a contribution to Gore? How will you know whether you've succeeded? What will success look like? And the last one is who will want to celebrate with you? And he wouldn't accept everyone. Right? He wanted to know who are the people that are going to celebrate your particular success on this project? Well, why was that powerful? Well, it's powerful because it helps you think of your what you're doing in terms of an activity rather than a function. Right? Being in HR is not a project. Being in sales is not a project. Being in R&D isn't even a project, right? There's something specific that you're doing. And then that second question is, if you succeed, how will this be... Um, how, I mean, what, what, what does success look like? How, how, how will this be a contribution to the enterprise? I'm trying to remember this, the, the fellow's name, but he was the one that became um, CEO at uh, SRI. And when SRI became suddenly was making money rather than just being a, a really neat think tank, Carlson. And, and his whole point was you had to get people thinking about value creation, not what is it that you do as a function, but how are you creating value? How are you creating value? The enterprise has to create value or it's not going to succeed. How are you going to help create value for the enterprise? So that last question, oh, so the so other parts are, how will you know when you succeeded? Well, so you don't just keep saying, well, I'm on this project forever and ever. I mean, when the project has succeeded, when you've succeeded, then technically it's time to think about another project. Could be a spinoff from what you just did, but it could be it's time to go to something else. But the one that I really liked was that who will celebrate with you? Because what that forced you to do is you couldn't say all associates. I mean, if I'm successful, that'll be good for all associates, which is true. But it forced you to think about who were the specific people that you needed in some sense on your side? Who are the people that are going to be providing resources, who are going to be providing help, who are going to be providing encouragement, who are going to be providing support? So that if you were able to be successful, they're going to all take some, be glad that what they contributed to your success. So those are some of the some of the practices. I guess another one that I thought was pretty powerful, and it got picked up by by others. What's it called? Beyond budgeting uh, roundtable. Gore had a practice early of doing forecasting every year. And what they moved to early on, which I thought was pretty good, and I guess many organizations now do this, is that forecasts become almost like a, not monthly, but forecasts for sales and forecasts for investments have to be linked. So if sales are not coming in at what you forecasted they were going to be, then you need to be checking your investments. And so it's not just setting up a budget. And, and one thing that I loved at Gore was that there was none of this game at the end of the year about, well, we still have money in the budget, so let's use it. No, I mean, if you didn't have a good reason for using it, don't use it. Teach some classes in some government organizations <laughs> I know about. You know, you think about, I think Forbes, I, I, reading on the Gore website, I think it says, you know, Forbes lists Gore as top 200 private company in the world you know, $3.8 billion a year in revenue, 11,000 associates. When it comes to projects and, and products, I mean, being a snowboarder and snowmobiler, I think about Gore-Tex right off the yeah. bat. But what are, what are other, you know, big, what are other big things inside Gore that maybe not everybody realizes came out of Gore? Probably the biggest are various medical devices, particularly for cardiovascular um, diseases. So there are estimates 
50 million gore implanted products in people walking around the world. And some of these are absolutely extraordinary products. So the first one was the gore vascular graft. And again, a funny story from gore history. When, when they came up with these gore cortex, one of the things that they started doing was trying to just figure out different shapes that they could make it in. So the fabrics, Gore-Tex fabric is a, a laminate, it's flat. There are Gore-Tex fibers that are round, but solid. And they use that a lot in chemical companies, industrial uh, processing plants, things like that, where you have highly corrosive chemicals. And somebody thought of turning one of these things into a tube. The original idea was that it would be used in aquariums. I don't know why that, but that was the original idea. And so Bill Gore was on a ski lift happened to be sitting next to a doctor and just pulled out one of these tubes and said, can you imagine anything that this thing could be used for? And the doctor asked about some of its properties. Well, it's made out of Teflon, so it's inert. It's uh, not going to contaminate the body in any way, shape, or form. This, that, the doctor got more and more interested and said, well, let me take it. Let me take it. Now, this is years ago before people would do this, but in a very off-label use given that it was supposed to be for aquarium, he tried it as a artificial vein, essentially, right? And somebody who would need one. And this particular product did not cut the mustard, right? The, the aquarium tube did not, but it gave them the idea to do that. And so they made vascular graphs. They've made some really incredible things that septal occluders, you know, sometimes there are babies that are born with holes in their heart. And if that's not repaired, then the growth for the child is very difficult. Life can be very difficult. And so they came up with something that can shut the two, the opening in the two chambers of the heart. Tons and tons of things. One of their biggest products is something called a thoracic graft. The thorax is up here above the heart and above the chest. And do you know that in car crashes, one of the biggest causes of death is that the steering wheel punctures the thorax, I guess, whatever it is, that blood vessel. And so this thoracic a graph can be implanted in patients and who have been under severe trauma has to be there fast. I think you've got an hour, you know, the golden hour to get something like this in. And that's used widely uh, throughout the world. The other, I guess, so you've got the fabrics, you've got the medical products, then they've got a lot of sort of B2B customers in the electronics industry, computer industry, high performance wires, wires and cable and space, satellites, high, high corrosive, high, very difficult environments. And then more down to earth, tons and tons of little filters in your electric toothbrush, in your headlights, in your car, all kinds of places where you can't imagine. Gore's got something like 3000 plus patents and they have about 2,500 active products at any one time. And, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal organization in that way. Um, you know, we, li we like to cut these episodes in half, and I know we're closing in on the first half here. When you think about that level of innovation, which, again, organizations with 11,000 staff are not typically known for that level of innovation. Uh, we have a lot of entrepreneurs, CEOs listen to the show. We have a lot of investment fund managers listen to the show. What advice would you give them based on experience, you know, this basically three decades of observing this, you know, system of innovation. It wasn't a lucky strike. It is repeated systematic innovation that actually gets commercialized profitably. What advice would you have for, for whether it's a young startup or people who are funding them? I think that's, a, that is a great question. And boy, wouldn't we all like to know what the exact secret formula is? 
But I, th I think that there are a couple of pieces here that are really important. I think that Gore tried to make it easy for people to start something. Experimentation was, was easy. If the, only if the only effort that took to get something started was you, all right, then go ahead, give it, give it a try. Now, I, I want to be clear here. Do you have a track record of succeeding? Because a lot of these products were invented by the same person, you know, came up with 9, 10, 11 of them. So the better your track record, the more you can cut yourself some slack at your first crack out of the bucket. But everybody had that chance of saying, okay, this is something that I can do. And I, I would say that one of the other things about Gore is it's not just products, right? They're, they have innovations and in processes. They have innovations in culture. They have innovations in all kinds of places. So it's not, so it's like creating this mindset that we're always trying to figure out how to create value, how to create value, how to create value. So then the second piece to it is not only just let people have this chance to experiment, but to make it easy ingredients for people to get the support and resources that they need to be able to keep moving something forward, right? So you don't want to have an organization where everybody's doing basic research, right? That was, that, that's in some ways what SRI might've been a long, long time ago. And you don't want to have an organization where everybody is just doing, you know, derivative product for next year. You've got to have enough resources available for the basic research, but for the 10-year out product and for the five-year out product and for next year's product. And you have to have, I don't know, leaders who can have the credibility with the entrepreneurs, with the scientists, with the, that they can say, look, I'm gonna, I, I think this is good, but we may have to go slower. Or I think this is good and you got to move faster. And, and here's where we are. We've got these resources. We can use them this year. I can use them now because there's always a tension, right? I mean, when you've got 11,000 associates, you've probably got 6,000 ideas out there right now that people are thinking about could be this, could be that. And so you have to make some smart decisions about where you're going to invest. Yeah. Well, I have so many more questions, but I'm going to save them for part two. We're going to ask more about how that is actually done. Michael, if people want to connect with you, where's the best place on the internet? Uh, best place is either through LinkedIn or through michaelpakanowski.com. Great. Okay, everybody, please tune back in for part two. I'm going to bug Michael to teach us more of the specifics on how to, how to do this ourselves.